welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 129 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 31st of August 2014, entitled The Genesis Account, Part 6. And the Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. Where are we going? How is it all going to finish? And so as we begin trying to answer those questions, Paul wrote to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith, the faith, grace, be with thee. Amen. There are many things out there today that are called science, that are called knowledge, that are precisely what Paul was talking about in his day, science falsely so called. As we begin to look at the Genesis account, we said that in fact, everybody has to believe that it came from somewhere. There's really only two ways that that can be divided out. And of course, as we think of, of creation, and that's that either they believe in spontaneous creation, that it all just came of itself and became of itself, and we looked at some of those reasons, or supernatural creation, that there was a creator that planned it and designed it and put it into place. We said as we began to look that the Word of God as he gives us the Genesis account, the book of beginnings, that it's not really just a matter of whether we believe that God did it in six days or not. If we take anything away from the Genesis account, then we take many things because it is the foundation upon which the rest of the Word of God is built upon. We said it is the very foundation. The Genesis account is the foundation for the authority of God's Word. I do not even know. I've tried to figure and understand. Maybe I'm just not smart enough. I don't understand how you can say that you believe in the authority of God's Word and yet don't believe Genesis. How can you believe in any of it if you can't believe that? We said that it is always also the foundation, not only for the authority of God's Word, but for the very assertion of God's existence. The book begins, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, when it all began, God was the one that was there, and we looked at that through scriptures. Thirdly, we looked at is the foundation for the absoluteness of God's creation. Absoluteness, meaning that it's totally free from any imperfections, that it's complete, that it's perfect, that it's not mixed or adulterated with anything else, that it's outright, that God did it himself from nothing without any outside help, and he did it perfect in his design and creation. Man was the one that fouled it up. Of course, after we looked at the absoluteness of God's creation, we looked also that The book of Genesis is the foundation for also the advancement of the human race. We further looked after that, that it's the foundation for the accountability of mankind. People don't like to feel accountable. I want to give you something else today. And all you have to do is open your eyes. 
you will see that when you remove the Genesis account and what God has told us, that you undermine and destroy the very foundation for the administration of home life as God meant it to be. The home, if it is to be solid, if it's to be upon that solid rock that is not going to crumble and fall when the storms begin to blow, then it must be founded upon the Word of God, upon God's plan. I would say that there are few things today in our lifetime that are under attack more than the family or the home. The foundation that is laid for them in Genesis has been and continues to be undermined and destroyed by society. God gives us much instruction throughout the Word of God for how that we can have strong homes, how that we can have harmonious homes, how that those family relationships can be what God wants them to be. But the foundations for that are laid right here in the Genesis account. I remind you what the psalmist said in Psalm 11.3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? When we begin to take away the foundations of our faith, that when those storms begin to blow against us, things will begin to crumble. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. We looked at those verses, and it said, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. In the closing verses of chapter 1 here, we have looked at God's act of creating both man and woman on day 6 of creation, a literal 24-hour day. His instruction for them, we've already seen, for the advancement of the human race was spelled out. The accountability that he placed upon them for both replenishing and caring for the earth that he had created for them. And, of course, we saw his provision for them in providing everything that they needed in order to be sustained. In Genesis chapter 2, with his work of creation complete, the Bible tells us that God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because that he had completed his work. He ceased his work, and he was setting before us an example that we would need for that day of rest. Then in chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 4, God begins us to give us a more detailed historical account of his creative act that he's just told us about in chapter 1. Notice again in chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This is not another creation of man from Genesis chapter 1. He's giving us a more detailed account here of exactly what he did. He added some information this time. 
He told us before that he had created man in his own image, that he had created man and woman. He's telling us here that at that creation, when he created man, he did something different. He breathed into man's nostrils, and that unique act caused man to become a living soul, different from any other creature that he had created. Only man was created in the image of God. Only man did he breathe into and bring him to life as a living soul. And, of course, that's followed with some of the details. The Garden of Eden. Then in verses 16 and 17, man being given that first command by God that we looked at, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if he did, we saw last week, he will surely die. We left off there last week. We want to pick up in verse 18 where we took our reading from today. And I want you to note here that some of the very foundational principles are laid for us for the home, for the family, for the home to be what God wants it to be. And I forewarn you, that just as many of the things that we've looked at, there are some of these principles that they're not popular. They're not popular with society. They're not popular with the world. But sadly, they're not even popular with a lot of Christians. We find that some of them are deemed to be what we keep hearing about being politically incorrect. <laughs> they're not things we're supposed to say. They're not nice things to say, they tell us. And of course, that is precisely why that so many of them have abandoned the very principles that God has given us. And as a result, they have abandoned the very foundation that their homes need to be built upon if they're going to be strong, if they're going to withstand the attacks that are coming against it. I want to give you just clear, five clear foundational principles from our passages here this morning that I believe are essential if the home is going to be what God wants it to be. If you destroy the foundation that God has laid for the home, then you will suffer the consequences undoubtedly. The first one we find here, we find that as we look again in verse 18, that the first one that we find, the first principle that God has given for the home is simply of marriage. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. How can that one verse make such a difference in the home life that we live today over 6,000 years later? Well, I want to tell you something, the wording here, because we just got through looking at a couple of ways at how that when God had completed uh, his creation, that he kept saying that when he looked, it was good. It was good. And finally, when he finished it all, he said, it is very good. But here he says something else. With all of this being so perfect, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, that is a very strong, and a very emphatic statement to, to put into the Bible. 
It's not declaring that there was a problem with God's creation, that it wasn't good. We've already seen that. It's not saying that God made a mistake or did something wrong when he created man. It's stating very clearly the incompleteness of his creation at this point because man was not complete yet. God wasn't finished. Remember, when we got to the end of chapter 1 when it said that everything was very good, that was after he had created the man and the woman. We're backing up here now before he gets to that point. And when he created man, he said that man is just not complete yet. Man wasn't finished when he first created just the man in his own image. He said here, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So what is he going to do about it? I will make him and help. I will make a help meet for him. I will make him and help meet for him. Now, to be a help means to aid somebody, to supply. And, and, and the particular word here means to supply something that, that the individual cannot supply for themselves. It means to aid someone that is in genuine need. When God looked at man, he said, I've created man, but this is not complete. There is something more that needs to be here to complete him. I need to help him do something. He cannot do this for himself. I am going to do it for him. Now, in our minds a lot of times, what do we think about when we think about a helper, a help as we see here? We often think of that as an inferior possession, uh, position or an inferior person because, you know, they're not the... They're not the brick mason, they're the helper. They're not the carpenter, they're the helper. They're not the teacher, they're the teacher's helper. We often think of it as an inferior position. They're just a helper. They aren't as important as the person that they're helping. That's very interesting when we think that way sometimes in our minds, but when you consider the fact that in Scripture that this word help or helper is used more frequently in reference to the Lord than to anything else or anybody else. And we see it over and over and over again in those Psalms that are written to be such an encouragement to us. You see, the greatest help of all is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that will truly supply what you genuinely need and cannot supply for yourself. But that's the kind of terminology he's using here when he first creates man and he looks at him and I need to make a help that is meet for him. That help, that, that aid, that completion that he can't do for himself. Meet carries the idea of something that is the opposite of being according to. In other words, the help is what is needed in order to complement or correspond or complete that thing. You've got this part. Here's something that's different that has to go together in order for it to be what it's supposed to be. God's intention is to create a helper for man. Man is in genuine need. <laughs> Man's no good by himself. <laughs> Man's not complete by himself. Man's not what God wants him to be yet by himself. He will be when God finishes his creation on day six. But at this point, he's not. A helper that will fulfill that need providing for man what he can never, ever do or be of himself. 
a helper that when put together with the man will complement in such a way that he will complete him to be what he's really designed to be. So God says, man should not be alone. I'm going to make him and help meet for him. He goes on in verse 19 and 20, he says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help meet for him. God says, I'm going to make a help that is meet for this man. He brings every creature that he has created. He brought every one of them before Adam. Adam calls them all by name. He gives them the name according to what they are. We're showing that further responsibility that we've already seen of, of man and his leadership role in creation. But in all of the animal creation and everything that God had done, there wasn't found one that was suitable to fulfill man's need for a helper. There wasn't found one that would complete man and make him all that he was meant to be. So he goes on and he says in verse 21 and 22, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. God made a promise. He says, I've created man, but he's not complete. He's not finished. He's not everything that he needs to be. So I need to make a help. I need to make someone to put together with him, to make him complete. And yet out of everything that's been created, nothing will fill that. So here in verse 18, or here, the promise in verse 18, here in verses 21 and 22, he's coming good on that promise that he's made. In fact, his creation not only completes man, it actually comes from man. God puts Adam to sleep. He didn't need any anesthesia. God put him to sleep. And God performs divine surgery on him right there in the Garden of Eden. And, of course, if God put him to sleep and performed surgery, guess what? This is also the first act of healing that you find anywhere in Scripture. God's the one that closed his side back up after he finished. Then, after taking man, putting him to sleep, taking that rib, part of his side, and taking and using that to create this woman, this one to complete him, this one to make him all that he needs to be, guess what? God brings him to Adam, and he presents this woman to Adam, just like the father would the bride, presenting her there to Adam. What was Adam's reaction? Notice verse 23, and Adam said, 
This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Pause and look at what's really being said here. Now God had just brought all of the animals. This is on day six of creation. God had brought all the animals before Adam. Out of all that creation, there was nothing there. But Adam had seen all of them, and Adam had named all of them. But wow, God brought something else to him here. This was totally different than anything. There was nothing else that would do what this would do. And God brought it before Adam and presented it to him. And it says here, this is now. Now, if you notice in your Bible, the is is put in there in italics. This is now. It's put there to make it make sense in our English language, but literally, this now. It could also be said as this time. In other words, man, God's brought all of these things before me. Wow. <laughs> this time, it's different. Adam was excited when he saw this creation that God had brought out of everything that God had created, everything that God had given him. Nothing like this. Adam's first words, this time. Wow. <laughs> this time. This is not like anything else that you've shown me, God. This is not like anything else that you've given to me. This is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. I'm going to call her woman because she came out of man. We see that correlation of the relationship in our English language, but even in the Hebrew language, he's going to call her Isha because he is Ish. We find that there's something here that's like anything else that God has done to this point. And he's brought her and he's given her to Adam. Notice the next word in your Bible in verse 24. The next word is Therefore, in other words, as a result of what God has just done, as a result of the joy that Adam is filled with, of this reaction that he has had to what God has given to it, therefore, he says, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Here, in the word of God, is the very first divine institution that God gives to mankind. We call it holy matrimony. Of all the institutions that God has given, some say three, some say four, some say five, depending on what they call their institution, but there is no question that this is the first one. This is the first institution that God has set up, matrimony. Therefore, as a result of this, as a result of God creating this man and this woman to be together, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. He said, therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother. And that's not breaking the relationship or taking away the honor that's due to his parents, but it is a total change. Rather than this man going to be under the authority of his parents, 
he is about to take the authority and responsibility for his own home. The bond, even between him and his parents, and unless you've had children, that's hard to explain and put into words. There's no words to describe that bond that is there, of that creation that God has blessed and given to you that is part of you, that has come out of you. But it's different than this bond that he's about to enter into. Though this change here speaks directly of the man, may I say that it is certainly inferred here that the same is true for the woman as well because of the last part of the verse, the relationship is to follow. And that's also supported if you look in Psalm 45 and notice what it says there in verses 10 and 11. Psalm 45 Verses 10 and 11, the Word of God says, Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. See, God is speaking to us of the completion of the man here. But the principle that he's given is clearly one that is binding upon both the man and the woman because there is no way. It's a complete impossibility for the second part of this verse to even be able to happen unless both have gone through this first change. First of all, you've got to leave before you can cleave. So we find that... He says here that, therefore, because of what I've just done, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. What does he say? And shall cleave unto his wife. Now that word cleave there in your Bible is a very, very, very strong word for joining two parts, joining two things together that are then one thing. It carries the sense of a permanent and unbreakable union. These are two separate things that when they are joined together, they are joined forever and it is not to be broken. It's the same base that we get our word weld from when literally those steels are melted together and become one if it's done properly. You'll be able to break and cut that steel in a different place a lot easier than where it's been welded together. There can be no question that the idea that is being presented here in God's plan is for these two to be joined together as one, never to be separated again. Divorce is not even a consideration here. It's not even on the table that these two that are joined together as one would ever be separate again. And he makes that even more clear in the remainder of verse. Therefore shall a man leave father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. They shall be one flesh. The leaving and the clinging has got to take place first, but then they become one flesh. It speaks of a complete unifying of two different parts into one whole. 
It is the strongest of the Hebrew words that could be used here to literally show a complete change of state. It's no longer what it was. It was two. Now it is one flesh. It's completely different. The two literally have become one in life and purpose and everything. That's God's plan for the home. God's foundation, God's principle for the home is one man and one woman joined in holy matrimony to become one flesh. And it doesn't include any variations. One man and multiple women don't do it. One woman and multiple men don't do it. One man and one man doesn't work. One woman and one woman certainly doesn't. One man and one woman outside of the bonds of marriage doesn't work either. See, there's so many things Society tries to chisel away in so many things. They try to make things suddenly become normal that are totally abnormal to God's plan. You better remember Satan wants you destroyed. He wants your life destroyed. He wants you to be as miserable as you possibly can. He doesn't want you to be effective. One man, one woman, joined together as one flesh, Holy matrimony. And of course, it's then when we really begin to see what God is doing. That one flesh, it also includes and implies that intimate relationship, that one that is proper, complete, only within the relationship of a husband and a wife that have been joined together as one flesh. That's what it pictures. That's what it is. One man, one woman, joined as one flesh. And from that union, that one flesh is seen visually in the representation of a child born of that union. That one flesh. And of course, that itself brings us to the second principle you see here. God has gone to great lengths to make this relationship called marriage, matrimony. That's where the home begins. It's not a home that God planned any other way. But of course, today we hear so many arguments, so many people, this is a home and that's a home and this is just an alternative and this is just different. That's their choice. But I'm saying to you that the foundation of which God builds the home upon is one man, one woman, holy matrimony joined together as one flesh. And from that union come the children that make up that home. Remember what he told us back in Genesis 1.28. He's given this command to the man and woman. He's showing us now just when God told them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, how that was going to take place. We saw in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where their first two sons were born from that relationship. God now shows us here in chapter 2 very clearly how that directive for the advancement of the human race 
is to be carried out. Now listen, I fully realize that every man and every woman that are married do not, and in some cases cannot, have children. Just as every man and every woman are not married. But what we're seeing here is the general. Those are exception to the rules. You see, God has a normal for the home. God has laid the foundation for that home life. But he also has a specific will and plan for each individual's life. For the apostle Paul, it was better not to marry. That doesn't make him less of a Christian. It doesn't mean that he'll have less of a home. We find that God has a plan. And if that plan is put into practice the way that he spells it out, we find that children are to be born through and into a home and not outside of those boundaries. The directive to replenish the earth is given to a husband and a wife that are no longer two that have been joined together as one flesh. It's God's intention for children to be born in that way and not in any other way through any other relationship, no matter what. A relationship that's formed in any other way than through holy matrimony is not a relationship for children. If it's not one man, one woman, united in one flesh, then it's not a home as God planned it for children to be included in. But preacher, what about those children that are born outside of that? You love them with all of your heart. <laughs> you love them as much as you can possibly love them. We're not saying that those children are inferior. We're saying that's not God's plan. That's not the way God wants it. If that home is to be that happy, harmonious home that God wants, it's got to start on the right foundation. And what we're talking about here is how do you build a home that God has given you the directives to be able to build, to have that, that foundation. You see, if a relationship is made up of a man and a man, some think that's just as much a home. If it's made up of a woman and a woman, may I say the possibility of giving a birth to a child in any normal fashion is totally and completely impossible. And therefore, if we make that the home, the home dies and eventually all of humanity will cease to exist. It can't work that way. It's not the normal to work that way. It's not just an alternative. It is against the very precepts of God's word. God's foundational plan for the home that is laid here in Genesis is supported throughout the rest of the scriptures then. One man, one woman. Joined permanently as one flesh in holy matrimony. And through that union of one flesh, children being born. And eventually, following that same pattern, as they leave mother and father, and they cleave and are joined together with one as one flesh. That's the way God meant it to be. 
as you move into chapter 3, you see what happened. (laughs) You see, why is it today that we have so much that's called normal that's so contrary to God's Word? Well, we're going to come back to it later, but in In Genesis chapter 3, we have the account of Satan's temptation and the fall of man in the garden. God willing, that'll be next week. But we'll come back to those verses right now. Notice verse 16 of chapter 3. We see the next principle for the home, which is hard for some to swallow. Well, talk to God. You can talk to me if you want to, but I can't change it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, after that fall in the first part of chapter 3, unto the woman he said, God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. I know some would just say I'm a bigot that I got some hang up against women or something like that. No, I'm just saying God said this. In direct relation to that childbirth that he just got through, telling them about before that she got tempted by Satan, can you imagine, ladies, if you've given birth, what it would have been like to give birth without the fall, without any of those labor pains? I've never experienced them, I admit, (laughs) But I've seen them. (laughs) I've tried to hear people explain them. They're no fun. Because of the fall, God said, woman, now it's going to be different. You're still to produce these children. But unfortunately, now it's going to hurt. (laughs) Now, a lot of Bible scholars believe that the pain that was given there during childbirth was given to be a constant reminder. God doesn't do things just for no reason, but to be a constant reminder to the woman that she was the one that had given birth to sin in the garden and that that sin that she'd given birth to in the garden would be passed on to the very child that she was giving birth to now. And of course, There's only one remedy for the curse, the curse of the sin that the child is born with. That in itself should give that mother as well as the dad the greatest, highest priority for that child of all, and that's to raise a child that will trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He may remind us in the pain when they're born that sin is present, That sin is there, but let it remind us also that God has given us the answer, the cure. And of course, that's bad enough that because of that fall that that was going to be. But see, the third principle is not only matrimony and children, but it's the man is the head of the home. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. We'll never know what home life would have been like without the entrance of sin. Unless you have experienced something miraculous, something that is beyond imagination, because without sin, marriage would have just been perfect bliss, 
harmony, never a disagreement, never a cross word. I mean, just absolutely no sin present to bring about all those things. Who knows? But we do know that because of sin, that, uh, that perfect harmony between husband and wife was broken. And the husband and the wife both have to contend with that thing called sin. And there will always be struggles within any marriage. But God is the one that's there to help and to overcome it. God's way is what will work. I, I don't fully understand, and we may never fully grasp what is meant here by this desire being to the husband. Thy desire shall be to thy husband. Some believe that to be solely a physical desire, others to believe it to be a, a positive or a negative desire towards the husband's leadership. Seems more likely that it's talking about that natural desire because of that sinful nature that we're born with to rebel against the husband's leadership. You may submit to it, but don't tell me there's not that little something in there sometimes. I don't want to do this. Is he crazy? It doesn't come easy sometimes. Why? Because of sin. Because it's there. That's because what God said. My desire shall be to thy husband. It's probably evidenced by those feelings, those notions that come into our head even when we're trying to do what's right. It's possibly the reason that as a Christian wife, the woman has to constantly remind herself of the teaching in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and on about submitting to the husband. But of course, it's just as hard because in that same process, the husband's supposed to be loving her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Sins made a lot of things hard. It wasn't the way God planned it. But God had a perfect plan. God's plan is still in place for the home. We've made it harder because of sin. But God has still given us the answer. His plan is still the right plan. Whatever God included by that desire, he left no question here as to the husband being her head, being her leader, ruling over her. It's a foundational principle. A lot of people have tossed it out, yes. A lot of people say that's not appropriate for today's society. Well, it is pretty old-fashioned. I mean, it's a little over 6,000 years old uh, since God first told us about it. So, yeah, it's been around for a while. But I don't see where it's ever changed. It's still foundational to a biblical home and the administration of that home. The foundation is laid here. And though it's built upon throughout Scripture, it's never nullified. One man, one woman joined permanently as one flesh in holy matrimony. And through that union of one flesh, children being born that will eventually follow the same pattern with man directly responsible and accountable for the leadership of that home. Men, we don't need to get into all of here. There's plenty on it. Just as God gave you that responsibility, you will be held accountable for how you take that leadership role. And ladies, 
I realize everybody, every husband doesn't make it as easy for you as I make it for my wife, I know. <laughs> We're not talking about easy. Praise God, she'll have a big, big, big crown when she gets to heaven, amen. <laughs> We're not talking about easy. We're talking very challenging, very hard, and going against the grain of what society is saying. We're saying that's why the Genesis account is so vital and so important. This is God's way. And of course, in the next three verses, man is given another direct responsibility. Let me give you this very quick. He says in verse 17, unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, okay, to the woman, because of her fall with Satan, he had some things to say to her. Now, Adam, because he listened to his wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return into the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. We've already seen in earlier chapters that man was given the responsibility for keeping the garden. But you know, when he was first given that garden, there weren't any weeds to pull. There weren't any thorns. There weren't any of that stuff. Everything was supplied for him. His food was given to him. But now, after the fall, he's going to have to work for it. The responsibility is still there. He chose to listen to the woman rather than to God. Now he's going to have to face the consequences of that decision. Each and every one of us, we can listen to anybody we want to instead of God. We'll suffer the consequences of the choice that we make. The sorrow mentioned here is the same word that he mentioned to the woman in the previous verse in childbirth. Nothing has ever changed concerning the foundational truth that is found here. The foundation that is laid for man that he's going to have to work hard now in the sweat of his face to supply that food, to care for his home. But men, that is a foundational principle in God's plan for the home. You are responsible to work hard, to sweat, to do whatever that you have to do to supply for that home, to make sure that those needs are met. As a matter of fact, we don't have time to go, but later in the book, the Bible says that the one that won't supply for his own household is worse than an infidel. As a Christian, if you're not taking care of your family, he says, you're acting worse than a sinner, than a lost man, than somebody that don't even know God. One man, one woman joined permanently as one flesh in holy matrimony. Through that union of one flesh, children being born that will eventually follow the same pattern with man directly responsible and accountable for the leadership of the home and working hard to supply for his family's needs. But there's one final thing. That all sounds pretty hard on everybody. Nobody's got an easy role, do they? One final thing. We saw it back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. God gave you that pattern. Men and women, it's hard work to have the kind of home you ought to have. It's tremendous responsibility just because it's easier, just because some think that it's easier. It might be easier today, but you'll pay the consequences tomorrow if you don't follow God's pattern. But you see, we've already discussed the fact God also set up the day of rest. And as a home and as a family, you need that time together when you can rest and relax that God has put. Yes, it might be hard work, and some days will be harder than others. Whatever your role in all of it, God's there. We look around us. There's so many that are hurting. I simply remind you again, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Even as society destroys the foundations that God has given for the home, even as they make their own rules that are more comfortable, more palatable to the unregenerate. I'm just saying, folks, the Genesis account is vital. It lays down a solid foundation that's needed for the administering of home life as God planned it to be, as God wants it to be, that'll bring peace and harmony and true success. Not that it's going to be easy. Not that it's going to be a, a lot of hard work for nothing. It's going to pay off because God will bless you if you do it His way. It's still going to be hard no matter what you do. It's going to take some commitment, but God's given us that foundation. Don't worry if people think you're just old-fashioned and out of touch. In fact, when we're in touch with God's Word, we're the only ones that are in touch with the most valuable principles that have ever been given for the administration of your home. There's a lot of things you can do for your home but nothing more important than doing it God's way. In closing, let me just simply ask you this question. You say, well, preacher, what can I do about this? One, don't take lightly God's Word. Don't take lightly the principles and the foundations that God gives you. You may be here this morning. And as far as I know, in looking at this congregation, you're all saved and on your way to heaven. But if you're not today, the first thing you need to do is to make sure that you're on God's side and that he's on your side. If you've never, ever, ever gone to God, it was sin that's made it so hard. All children are born with that sin within them, each and every one of us. But God has given the cure. That cure is Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. It's his shed blood that will pay for your sins today. Maybe as a Christian, you say, well, preacher, whew, I've sure messed up. Don't worry, we all have. <laughs> what if I've already messed up and I've messed up the pattern? You know, I can't fix it. I can't undo it. You start where you are today. You go to a gracious and loving God that is there waiting for you right now. If you failed as a father or as a mother, if you failed as a husband or as a wife, 
If you failed as one of the children, if you failed as one that's not there yet, it's not going to get any better if you just forget about it and walk through those doors and leave it to be. It's only going to get better one way. Give it to the loving God that's waiting with outstretched arms for you. You've been having a tough time with some of it. He's the only one that can help you. We can try to encourage and strengthen and be there for each other. That's, that's part of why we come together. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And all the more, he says, but exhorting one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. We need each other. We need him most of all. The thing is, it can't start anywhere unless you start with him. Just admit it. If it's tough, just be honest about it and go to God. He knows what you're thinking anyway. No point in telling him a bunch of stuff that he knows. Boy, it's not what you're thinking in your mind, what's coming out of your mouth. No, he knows, and he's there, and he'll help you, and he's there for you today. We need strong homes. We need strong families. Many, many, many things will be trying to destroy and tear down and make it even harder for you. God's principles are the best. Start where you are. Do the best you can and trust him to give you the strength that you don't have. Little as much when God is in it. Amen. Father, we thank you today. Lord, as we think of just the attacks against the home and the family and all that's there, Lord, we realize that so many, so many situations are far from the way that you planned it to be. But that doesn't mean that you love us or love them any less. We know that you're there to help from now, from today, from the day that we'll just truly give it to you. Father, maybe those here today that are in marriage or out of marriage, but I pray that you'd help us all to understand that your principles are the only way for that home to truly be what it ought to be. We've all failed. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Father, today, if there's someone that's struggling in some specific part, would you please be there with them, be there for them. And I pray that they would have the strength and the courage to swallow their pride, swallow whatever it is, just turn their eyes upon Jesus, as the songwriter says. Face him, what they have. We give you all the praise, all the thanks for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Mm-hmm.